This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of rotator cuff arthropathy from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Rotator cuff arthropathy is a specific pattern of shoulder degenerative joint disease that results from a rotator cuff tear, leading to abnormal glenohumeral wear and subsequent superior migration of the humeral head. Diagnosis can be made primarily with shoulder radiographs showing glenohumeral arthritis with a decreased acromiohumeral interval. Treatment for minimally symptomatic patients involves activity modification, subacromial steroid injections, and physical therapy. Shoulder arthroplasty, most commonly reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, is indicated for patients with progressive pain and deterioration of shoulder function. Now, let's get into the episode. In terms of epidemiology, as far as the demographics, rotator cuff arthropathy is more commonly seen in females than males, and the seventh decade is the most common. With respect to location, rotator cuff arthropathy is more common in the dominant shoulder. Risk factors include rotator cuff tear, rheumatoid arthritis, crystalline-induced arthropathy, and a hemorrhagic shoulder, which is typically seen in hemophiliacs and the elderly on anticoagulants. In terms of pathophysiology, cuff tear arthropathy can be secondary to mechanical factors, nutritional factors, and crystalline-induced arthropathy. Mechanical factors can be secondary to loss of the concavity due to compression effect, decreased range of motion and shoulder function, humeral head migration, and instability with possible recurrent dislocations. Nutritional factors include loss of a watertight joint space, decreased joint fluid, and cartilage atrophy from decrease in water and glycosaminoglycan content and subchondral collapse, secondary to disuse osteoporosis. In terms of crystalline-induced arthropathy, degradation proteins in the synovium destroy the rotator cuff and cartilage, and end-stage disease leads to calcium phosphate crystal deposits. Rotator cuff arthropathy is characterized by the combination of rotator cuff insufficiency, glenohumeral cartilage destruction, superior migration of the humeral head, subchondral osteoporosis, and humeral head collapse. In terms of anatomy, be sure to listen to the podcast episode about glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizer, and biomechanics. Now let's talk about the classification of rotator cuff arthropathy, and the two classification systems to know include the Seabauer classification of rotator cuff arthropathy and the Hamada classification of rotator cuff arthropathy. The Seabauer classification of rotator cuff arthropathy is divided into two types. Type 1A is centered and stable and is characterized by intact anterior restraints, minimal superior migration, dynamic joint stabilization, and femoralization of the humeral head and acetabularization of the coracoacromial arch. Type 1B is centered and medialized and is characterized by intact or compensated anterior restraints, minimal superior migration, compromised joint stabilization, and medial erosion of the glenoid. Type 2A is decentered and has limited stability and is characterized by compromised anterior restraints, superior translation, and minimum stabilization by the coracoacromial arch. Type 2B is decentered and unstable and is characterized by incompetent anterior restraints, anterosuperior escape, non-existent dynamic stabilization, and no coracoacromial arch stabilization. Moving on to the Hamada classification of rotator cuff arthropathy, this classification system is divided into five grades. Grade 1 has an acromiohumeral interval of greater than or equal to 6 millimeters. Grade 2 has an acromiohumeral interval of less than or equal to 5 millimeters. Grade 3 has a acromiohumeral interval of less than or equal to 5 millimeters with acetabularization of the acromion. 
grade 4 is divided into 4A and 4B, where 4A is characterized by glenohumeral arthritis without acetabularization with an acromiohumeral interval of less than 7 mm, and 4B is characterized by glenohumeral arthritis with acetabularization with an acromiohumeral interval of less than or equal to 5 mm. And finally, grade 5 is characterized by humeral head collapse. In terms of presentation of rotator cuff arthropathy, patients may have symptoms of pain including night pain, subjective weakness, and subjective stiffness. On physical exam, inspection and palpation may reveal supraspinatus slash infraspinatus atrophy, prominence of humeral head anteriorly, which is known as anterosuperior escape, with elevation of the arm. Inspection and palpation may also reveal subcutaneous effusion from loss of fluid from the capsule. Range of motion includes limitations in active and passive range of motion. May also reveal crepitus in the glenohumeral and or subacromial joints with range of motion and pseudoparalysis, which will manifest with inability to abduct the shoulder. Provocative tests include the external rotation lag sign and horn blower sign. The external rotation lag sign is the inability to maintain a passively externally rotated shoulder with the elbow at 90 degrees. This is consistent with a massive infraspinatus tear. Horn blower sign is the inability to externally rotate or maintain passive external rotation of a shoulder placed in 90 degrees of elbow flexion and 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. This is consistent with Terry's minor dysfunction. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs in the setting of rotator cuff arthropathy includes a complete shoulder series, which includes an AP, axillary, and a Grashi or a true AP view. Findings include acromial acetabularization, which is seen on true AP, femoralization of the humeral head, which is also seen on the true AP, asymmetric superior glenoid wear, lack of osteophytes, osteopenia, a quote-unquote snow cap sign due to subchondral sclerosis, and anterosuperior escape. An MRI is not necessary if the humeral head is already showing anterosuperior escape on x-rays. However, if obtained, findings show an irreparable rotator cuff tear with massive fatty infiltration and severe retraction. Treatment of rotator cuff arthropathy can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves activity modification, subacromial steroid injection, and physical therapy. This is indicated as the first line of treatment. Physical therapy will involve a scapular and rotator cuff strengthening program. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications can be used for pain control, as well as subacromial steroid injections. Operative options include arthroscopic debridement, hemiarthroplasty, reverse shoulder arthroplasty, latissimus dorsi transfer, pectoralis transfer, and resection arthroplasty. So arthroscopic debridement has controversial indications. In terms of outcomes, arthroscopic debridement has unpredictable results, and remember you must maintain the coracoacromial arch without acromioplasty or release of the CA ligament. Hemiarthroplasty can be indicated if the anterior deltoid is preserved and the coracoacromial arch is intact. Deficiency of the coracoacromial arch would lead to subcutaneous humeral escape. Hemiarthroplasty is also indicated in younger patients with active lifestyles. In terms of outcomes of hemiarthroplasty, this will relieve pain but will not improve function, as the motion will be limited to 40 to 70 degrees of elevation. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty is indicated for a pseudoparalytic cuff tear arthropathy and is preferred in the elderly, which is defined as greater than 70, with a low activity level. It's also indicated in the setting of anterosuperior escape, and keep in mind that reverse shoulder arthroplasty requires a functioning deltoid with an intact axillary nerve and good bone stock. This is because the deltoid is used to assist the glenohumeral joint to act like a fulcrum in elevation. 
In terms of outcomes of reverse shoulder arthroplasty, this has the potential to improve both function and pain. However, keep in mind that it has the risk of inferior scapular notching with poor technique. A latissimus dorsi transfer is indicated for pseudoparesis with external rotation and can be done in combination with the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. A pectoralis transfer is indicated when there's internal rotation deficiency and subscapularis insufficiency. In terms of the technique, the upper portion or the whole pectoralis tendon is transferred near the subscapularis insertion on the lesser tuberosity. Complications include musculocutaneous nerve injury. Resection arthroplasty is indicated as a salvage option only, that is in the setting of chronic osteomyelitis, infections, and or poor soft tissue coverage. Keep in mind that glenoid resurfacing and total shoulder arthroplasty are contraindicated in the setting of rotator cuff arthropathy. Glenoid resurfacing is contraindicated as excess shear stress on the superior glenoid leads to failure through loosening. Complications from surgical intervention in the setting of rotator cuff arthropathy include infection, neurovascular injury, deltoid dysfunction, and instability, which is more common after hemiarthroplasty, but is rare after reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 74-year-old female with cuff tear arthropathy is scheduled to undergo a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Which of the following would be an indication to perform a concurrent latissimus dorsi transfer? And the choices are one, axillary nerve neurotmesis, two, negative hornblower sign, three, pseudoparalysis of external rotation, four, pseudoparalysis of internal rotation, and five, supraspinatus retraction medial to the glenoid. The correct answer to this question is three, pseudoparalysis of external rotation. So patients with irreparable posterosuperior rotator cuff tears and rotator cuff arthropathy may require a latissimus dorsi transfer at the time of reverse shoulder arthroplasty due to an external rotation functional deficit. To quickly review, rotator cuff arthropathy is a combination of rotator cuff insufficiency, glenohumeral cartilage destruction, superior migration of the humeral head, subchondral osteoporosis, humeral head collapse, femoralization of the humeral head, and acetabularization of the coracoacromial arch. Patients with an external rotation deficit may require a latissimus dorsi transfer. This is clinically evaluated by assessing for the presence of an external rotation lag sign or horn blower sign. While the deltoid allows for the restoration of forward elevation with the use of reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, it may not adequately address the external rotation due to infraspinatus and teres minor dysfunction. Puskas et al. reviewed the use of latissimus dorsi transfer with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty for patients with a combined pseudoparalysis of forward elevation and external rotation. In their review of 41 shoulders that underwent reverse total shoulder arthroplasty combined with latissimus dorsi transfer for irreparable rotator cuff tears resulting in severe shoulder dysfunction, they reported a mean active external rotation improvement of 4 to 27 degrees. They concluded that those patients treated with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty combined with latissimus dorsi transfer, patients with pseudoparesis of elevation and external rotation can expect an excellent clinical outcome for a period beyond five years. She, et al., review use of latissimus dorsi and teres major tendon transfers with reverse shoulder arthroplasty in patients with superior rotator cuff function deficiency. They report a mean improvement of active forward flexion and active external rotation of 64 degrees and 30 to 44 degrees, respectively. 
They concluded that in patients with posterior and superior cuff deficiency, reverse shoulder arthroplasty combined with latissimus dorsi and teres major transfer through a single deltopectoral incision can reliably increase active forward flexion and external rotation. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, an axillary nerve neuromesis would be a contraindication to perform a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Answer 2, a positive, not negative hornblower sign would suggest external rotation weakness. Answer 4, pseudoparalysis of internal rotation would not be restored with a traditional latissimus dorsi transfer. And answer 5, supraspinatus retraction medial to the glenoid may be an indication for a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, but by itself is not an indication for a latissimus dorsi transfer and an external rotation deficit may not be present. Moving on to the next question. A 75-year-old African-American female presents with an insidious onset of atraumatic right shoulder pain. She has a history of a rotator cuff tear repair performed over 20 years ago. She denies fevers or constitutional symptoms. Her white blood cell count is 9, ESR is 15 millimeters per hour, where a normal range is 0 to 20 millimeters per hour, CRP is 8 milligrams per liter, where the normal range is 0 to 10 milligrams per liter. An AP radiograph of her right shoulder shows superior humeral head migration and acetabularization with wearing of the undersurface of the acromion and superior glenoid. What is the most likely pathogenesis of her condition? And the choices are 1. Intraarticular hemosiderin deposition, synovial hyperplasia, inflammatory cytokine cascade, and enzymatic cartilage destruction. 2. Intraarticular proliferation of gram-positive cocci, activation of polymorphonuclear cells, and release of inflammatory cytokines as well as enzymatic cartilage destruction. 3. Loss of dynamic compression of the humeral head against the glenoid abnormal joint forces, and mechanical cartilage wear. 4. Occlusion of the intraosseous microcirculation, decreased perfusion to the humeral head, and subchondral osteocyte death. And 5. T-cell-mediated autoimmune response, synovial hyperplasia, inflammatory cytokine cascade, and enzymatic cartilage destruction. The correct answer to this question is 3, loss of dynamic compression of the humeral head against the glenoid, abnormal joint forces, and mechanical cartilage wear. So this patient has rotator cuff arthropathy, which results from rotator cuff deficiency with loss of humeral head compression against the glenoid, abnormal joint forces, superior humeral head migration, and mechanical cartilage wear. Rotator cuff arthropathy represents a spectrum of pathology encompassing three key features. 1. Rotator cuff insufficiency. 2. Degenerative changes of the glenohumeral joint, and 3. Superior migration of the humeral head. The rotator cuff muscles compress the humeral head against the glenoid, allowing concentric rotation of the humeral head, a concept termed concavity compression. Alteration in this compressive force ultimately result in glenohumeral instability and superior translation of the humeral head with subsequent mechanical joint degeneration. Eklund et al. reviewed the pathogenesis of rotator cuff arthropathy, which involves both mechanical and biochemical effects of a massive cuff defect. Loss of dynamic concavity compression and anterosuperior humeral head escape results in the mechanical impact of the humeral head abutting the acromion, producing cartilage fragmentation. This debris incites an enzymatic response that further damages cartilage, causing pain and immobility that ultimately results in disuse deterioration of the articular surface. Feely et al. reviewed the surgical management of rotator cuff arthropathy. Total shoulder arthroplasty should be avoided due to a high rate of glenoid loosening requiring component revision. 
Without the compressive and inferiorly directed force of the intact rotator cuff, the humeral head displaces superiorly with motion leading to eccentric loading of the glenoid component, otherwise known as a rocking horse phenomenon. The surgical treatment of choice remains the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, which moves the center of rotation distally and medially to improve deltoid function and implant stability. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, pathogenesis of hemophilic arthropathy, joint destruction due to recurrent hemarthrosis, is the setting of hereditary coagulation factor deficiency. Hemophilic arthropathy in the shoulder can result in massive rotator cuff tears, but is a less likely etiology given this patient's gender and clinical history. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, intraarticular hemosiderin deposition, synovial hyperplasia, inflammatory cytokine cascade, and enzymatic cartilage destruction is incorrect, as this is the pathogenesis of hemophilic arthropathy or joint destruction due to recurrent hemarthrosis in the setting of hereditary coagulation factor deficiency. Hemophilic arthropathy in the shoulder can result in massive rotator cuff tears, but is a less likely etiology given this patient's gender and clinical history. Answer 2. Intraarticular proliferation of gram-positive cocci, activation of polymorphonuclear cells, and release of inflammatory cytokines and enzymatic cartilage destruction is incorrect, as this is the pathogenesis of septic arthritis, which is unlikely given the normal white blood cell count, ESR, and CRP. Propionobacterium acnes or P. acnes can cause a septic arthritis with normal inflammatory markers and may be considered in a patient with a surgical history. However, P. acnes is a gram-positive bacillus. Answer 4. Occlusion of the intraosseous microcirculation, decreased perfusion to the humeral head, and subchondral osteocyte death is incorrect, as this is the pathogenesis of avascular necrosis, characterized radiographically by subchondral lucency and or humeral head collapse, not superior humeral head migration. And finally, answer 5. T-cell-mediated autoimmune response, synovial hyperplasia, inflammatory cytokine cascade, and enzymatic cartilage destruction is incorrect, as this is the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis which is less likely given normal inflammatory markers and is characterized radiographically by periarticular osteopenia and central glenoid erosion, not superior. Moving on to the next question. Reverse total shoulder orthoplasty combined with latissimus dorsi transfer would be most appropriate for which of the following patients? And the choices are 1. 75-year-old male with post-traumatic shoulder arthritis after a four-part proximal humerus fracture with no motor dysfunction, 2. 63-year-old male with grade 4 shoulder arthritis with severe deltoid muscle dysfunction secondary to a stroke. 3. 80-year-old female with significant rotator cuff arthropathy, a negative hornblower sign, and less than 5 degrees of external rotation lag. 4. 70-year-old female with pseudoparesis of anterior elevation and external rotation, narrowing of the glenohumeral joint, and acetabularization of the acromion and 5, 82-year-old male with grade 4 shoulder arthritis and an isolated supraspinatus tear. The correct answer to this question is 4, 70-year-old female with pseudoparesis of anterior elevation and external rotation, narrowing of the glenohumeral joint, and acetabularization of the acromion. So reverse total shoulder orthoplasty combined with latissimus dorsi transfer would be most appropriate in a patient with pseudoparesis of anterior elevation and external rotation in the setting of shoulder arthritis, which is characterized by narrowing of the glenohumeral joint and acetabularization of the acromion. Combining latissimus dorsi tendon transfers with reverse total shoulder orthoplasty helps to restore control of active external rotation. Dysfunction with external rotation can be determined clinically with external rotation lag sign, a positive hornblower sign, and radiographically with fatty degeneration of the teres minor classified as stage 2 or greater 
according to the system of Goutelier et al. or Fuchs et al. Gerber et al. found that a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty with combined lat dorsi transfer yielded minimal improvements in external rotation range of motion, that is 13 degrees to 19 degrees, compared to increases in shoulder range of motion in flexion, that is 94 degrees to 137 degrees, and abduction, that is 87 degrees to 145 degrees, with this procedure. Bolo et al. examined 17 consecutive patients treated with reverse shoulder arthroplasty and latissimus dorsi as well as Terry's major transfer, otherwise known as the Lepiscopo procedure. They found that external rotation increased from negative 21 degrees to 13 degrees or positive 34 degrees. They recommend transferring both the latissimus dorsi and Terry's major rather than the latissimus dorsi alone as it results in better active external rotation. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, post-traumatic arthritis without motor dysfunction may be treated with total shoulder arthroplasty, and there is no indication for tendon transfer. Answer 2, severe dysfunction of the deltoid is typically considered a contraindication rather than an indication for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Answer 3, this patient may benefit from a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. However, there is no clinical finding of external rotation dysfunction. A positive hornblower sign and external rotation lag of greater than 15 degrees to the contralateral shoulder would be indicative of an external rotation dysfunction. And finally, answer 5, isolated supraspinatus tears are not a surgical indication for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. And moving on to the final question, following open pectoralis major transfer to address chronic subscapularis insufficiency, which of the following movements would most likely show weakness if an iatrogenic nerve injury occurred during the pectoralis transfer? And the choices are 1, elbow flexion, 2, elbow extension, 3, shoulder external rotation, 4, shoulder adduction, and 5, shoulder abduction. The correct answer to this question is 1, elbow flexion. So during open pectoralis major tendon transfer for chronic subscapularis deficiency, the musculocutaneous nerve is most at risk. Injury to this nerve would lead to weakness in elbow flexion. Musculocutaneous nerve neuropraxia is a known complication of the procedure caused by increased tension on the nerve. The transferred tendon should be placed deep to the conjoint tendon, but superficial to the nerve to decrease tension. A proximal musculocutaneous nerve neuropraxia could cause weakness in elbow flexion due to its innervation of the biceps and brachialis muscles. Kleps et al. performed a cadaveric study to examine the surgically relevant anatomy of subcoracoid pectoralis transfer. Transfer of the pectoralis major superficial to the musculocutaneous nerve created less tension than transfer deep to the musculocutaneous nerve. They concluded release of the proximal musculocutaneous branches or debulking of the pectoralis major muscle belly may be required in some instances to prevent tension on the musculocutaneous nerve. Jost et al. found that in cases of irreparable subscapularis muscle function, pectoralis major transfer resulted in improvement for patients if they had an associated reparable supraspinatus tear. Patients with irreparable tears of both the subscapularis and supraspinatus had less favorable results. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, elbow extension, which is a triceps action, is from the radial nerve. Shoulder external rotation, which is an infraspinatus and teres minor action, is from the suprascapular and axillary nerves, respectively. Answer 4. Shoulder adduction is a pectoralis major, latissimus dorsi, and teres major action, is from the medial and lateral pectoral nerves, thoracodorsal nerve, and lower subscapular nerve, respectively. 
And finally, answer five, shoulder abduction is a supraspinatus and deltoid action and is from the suprascapular and axillary nerves, respectively. That's all for this review about rotator cuff arthropathy. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.